When you are free, you live a life that sets other people free. God has more for you than you can ever imagine. Three words, hope, health, and healing. Amen by myself. Welcome to Midtown. Today is a new day. It's a lovely day. And it is the start of a new sermon series. Uh, our last series was entitled, What's in a Name? And we, we went over just a few of the names that we have for God. Uh, there's Jehovah Rapha, Healer. There's Yahweh, the Great I Am. Elohim, All-Powerful. And El Roy, the God Who Sees. So as a follow-up to what's in a name, because what we call God matters, we wanted to go a little deeper and talk a little bit more about the characteristics of God. It's not just about what we call God, it's about knowing God. And it's not just about knowing about God, it's actually knowing who God is. So in this series... We're going to talk about the characteristics of who God is. So in this series called Character Matters, we'll be taking a look at who God is. So why don't we stop and pray a moment just to ask the Lord to open up our understanding. Lord, we thank you that you have invited us to come and hear and see and experience of your goodness and love. Would you open up our ears to your words? Would you open up our understanding so that we would receive from you? Lord, help us to leave here changed because we have encountered your word. We have encountered the truth and you have transformed us. Lord, have your way in Jesus name. Amen. I just want to stop and say we see you online family. Thank you for joining us. We love you and we're glad that you're here. And before we jump into this new series, um, I want to reflect back on last week's message. Uh, Last week, many of our staff were down in Orange County celebrating Pastor Bob's ordination and uh, doing other priestly duties. (laughs) Um, But we were were down there and we asked a a dear brother, a good friend of ours, um, a great pastor named Pastor Ricky Jenkins to come and fill in our stead. And if you heard that message, you know it was a good one. The title of his message was A Kinder, Gentler Christianity. A Kinder, Gentler Christianity. And of course, he spoke about the fruit of the Spirit and and how um, the ability to be kind and gentle does not come from a power of our own, but it comes from an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit allows us to act and live in kindness and in gentleness. He shared many encouraging things. Um, One key takeaway was that historically, the world has not been moved so much by Christian rightness, but rather by Christian kindness. How much we know or how right we are is not the thing that moves people's hearts. What moves people's hearts is kindness, the kindness of God, the kindness of God's people, kindness that is produced in us and through us, through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what moves people. But then there is this one thing that he said that has stuck with me because it stuck me a little. Um, he, he said that there's this saying that has become a thing on social media. So if you're on TikTok or Instagram, there's, there's this saying that goes like this. There's no hate like Christian love. There's no hate like Christian love. And when I watched the playback last week, I heard it in the room just like I heard it now. It's this, ooh, ooh, that kind of stings. 
And, and you might have some, some, some different reactions. Maybe you're sorting through how you feel about that. Uh, maybe you even feel a little defensive about that. Well, that's not fair. That's not entirely true. Or, or maybe you hear that and you go, oh, well, oh, that hurts because it is kind of true. I have observed that. I would see why people would say that. And, and regardless of what we think, I, I think it's just sad that this saying even exists and that it's a thing. And, and it's very telling. It tells us that there are people who think this. There are people who have felt this. There are people who have observed this. And it's a saddening and maddening reality. And it can make it hard to talk about our faith sometimes. It can make it hard to say that we're a Christian because sometimes in the world people have this perception of who Christians are, that Christians are narrow-minded, that they're judgmental, critical, even sometimes downright mean and hateful. Ooh, this is the total opposite of what we ought to be known by. As Christians, we should be known by our love and our love for one another, our love for God. So how did we get here? How did we get to a place where this saying has become a thing? There's no hate like Christian love. You know, even though last week was what we call a standalone sermon, a sermon that is not part of a series, and even though Pastor Ricky didn't even know that this is the series that we were going to go into and that I was going to talk today about truth and love, that must have been a God-ordained thing because I feel like it was the perfect message to tee us up for today's message on truth and love. As we look at the characteristics of who God is, God is the God of truth and God is the God of love. But I think that this was the perfect message to tee us up because we need to remember gentleness and kindness when we're talking about truth and love. You know, I usually like to look at longer passages of scripture and unpack them with you. Um, The last time that I spoke here at the Sacramento campus, we looked at all of Genesis 16. We, We read all of Genesis 16 and unpacked it as we talked about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Um, and, and then a few weeks before that, we looked at all of Genesis 22 as we looked at Abraham and Isaac. And, and I like to do that because I love to give context to what's going on in the Bible. But today we're just going to look at one verse primarily. There's going to be other scriptures that we look at, but we're really going to focus in on just one verse. And it's a well-known verse. And it's the one in John 14, 6 that says this. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through through me. This is one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, and it's also perhaps one of the most controversial ones. The reason why I say that a message on gentleness and kindness is a great message to set us up for today's message on truth and love is because when it comes to discussion around truth and what is not truth, things can get heated. Uh, When arguing about fundamental truths and in the name of holding fast to orthodoxy or, or what is right, sometimes gentleness and kindness can get overrun by passion and conviction. When it comes to talking about talking about truth, well, let's be honest, sometimes people get swelled up with pride. And in a fight to be right, these conversations can get downright mean and nasty sometimes. 
There's no hate like Christian love should really cut us to the heart. In the name of what's true, in the name of what's right, and yes, sometimes even in the name of Jesus, sometimes people can become unloving and unkind. Now, I know that some people will say that the most loving thing to do is to tell the truth. And I agree with that. I agree with that on the one hand, but I also get nervous about that because it's often said as an excuse for unkindness. You'll hear someone say, I wasn't trying to be mean. I was just telling the truth. Right? And, and, and to say, you know, well, the truth hurts or, or the most loving thing to do is tell the truth if it's not clothed in gentleness and kindness just becomes an excuse. Sometimes in our quest to share the good news about the truth, about who God is, we forget first and foremost that God is love. Yes, Jesus, he is the truth. He's actually the embodiment of truth. But perhaps I should say not instead of but. We need to remember and he is also the embodiment of love. Now, I want to ask you a question. You wouldn't lie to someone you love, would you? We'll be right back. We'll be back to this podcast episode shortly, but we wanted to take this time to give you an opportunity to give. Why do we give? At Midtown, we believe that giving is both an act of worship and a command. And the psalmist says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So when we give, we're simply giving back to God what belongs to God in the first place. For those of you who give regularly, thank you. And if you're new around here, there's no obligation to give. We just encourage you to give however God is leading you. You can give digitally on our website or our app, but let's take a moment to pray right now. God, thank you that you have given us an opportunity to partner with you in the work that you want to do to display your goodness and your love to the world around us. So God, take this offering right now, multiply it and use it for the good of your people and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's get back to our podcast episode. Colette, would you lie to someone that you love? Are you sure about that? Are we sure about that? Because, you know, sometimes we lie. We might even be lying to ourselves about that if we said no. Um, Let's be honest. We all tell lies. Some of them big, some of them small. But we tell lies. And and some of us tell a lot of lies. You know, I'm going to call some of you out right here, okay? I'm not going to point to you in the crowd. But I'm going to say, for those of us who tend to be 5, 10, 20 minutes, even an hour late sometimes... You know, when you get that text from your friend who's waiting on you that says, where are you at? What do you say? Oh, I'm on my way. <laughs> oh, I just left the house. Oh, I'm five minutes away. When you know full and well, you have not even left the house yet, right? We lie about things like this. I mean, some of us more than others. And, and yes, there's big lies and there's small lies. There's lies that are more consequential than others. But if we're being honest, there are things that we tell lies about. Oh, this sure tastes good, even when it doesn't. Sometimes we lie and it's out of good intention, but we're not always honest. So right now I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to tell them, what's the biggest lie you've ever told? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. You, I know you're not taking me seriously on that, okay? <laughs> Some of this laughter in the room right now is nervous laughter though, okay? Is she being serious? So I, I'm not asking you to confess to the person next to you what the biggest lie you've ever told or never told anybody about yet is 
But but if you do have something that you want to get get off your chest, if you need to meet with a chaplain after, you know, you there's prayer warriors over here who will ma- meet with you and pray with you, okay? But for the rest of us, I want us simply to to stop and and take some self-inventory right now. Do some self-reflection. I'm asking you to consider in the past or maybe in the recent past, what is something that you've lied about? Something that's actually kind of consequential. What's something that you've lied about or not fully told the truth about? What's something that you've let remain hidden? Take inventory of why you've lied about that or why you've kept that hidden. What was your motivation? Was it self-preservation? You didn't want to get in trouble, so you told a little lie. Or was it for self-promotion? Perhaps you felt like in some way or somehow you didn't measure up, so you told a little lie. You embellished the truth. Or is it because you felt shame? Perhaps your lie was more a, a lie of omission. You didn't lie per se, but you left out some details about the truth. You didn't tell the whole truth. See, telling the truth can feel really scary sometimes. Why does it feel scary? It feels scary because telling the truth requires us to be vulnerable. It requires us to be vulnerable, and maybe some of us feel like being vulnerable makes us look weak. And maybe for some of us, looking weak makes us look needy. And we don't like looking vulnerable, weak, or needy. We like presenting ourselves as if we have it all together. We like to be put together, to be well put together. And so even as I stand up here and preach, my hope is to be received by you as someone who is wise and not foolish. Someone who is coherent, not confusing. Somebody who is compelling and not boring. I hope to be seen as one who is entrusted to preach the word, to teach the word, to correctly handle the word of truth. And and I really hope that my words would be anointed. But it does not mean that my life is completely put together. I love that Pastor Bob and Pastor Ephraim, they're, they're just real. They're, they're who they are. They can come up here and they can joke about smoking cigars together. You know, in some churches that would scare people off. But they're like, hey, we'll be real. We'll bring honest. We're real people. I, if, if Pastor Bob had his, had his way and if he, he didn't think he was going to scare off the newcomers, I think that sometimes he would preach a, a sermon smoking a cigar. <laughs> but we're not going to judge, right? I, I, I love that we can be real about who we are. And like I said, when I stand up here, I want to be put together. I want to appear as if I have capabilities. And I, I hope that I am correctly handling the word of truth. But it doesn't mean that I don't have places where I'm weak. It doesn't mean that I don't have shortcomings or that my family doesn't have places where, where we're vulnerable or even in need. I'm going to be vulnerable right now and, and share that we do have a need right now. We have a need. My husband needs a job. My husband needs a job. And I'm not going to paint a picture of him as this guy who just sits around on the couch watching TV all day eating chips. And I'm like, damn, this dude needs a job, right? I'm, that's not what I'm saying. So the, the Marcos actually just recently lost his job. In fact, his saying yes to this job that he just lost is actually a big reason why I was able to say yes to this role at Midtown. And formerly, he had a role that was, uh, you know, kind of positioned for Southern California. And he was with a, a larger um, nonprofit organization that allows a, allowed us to have stability and a good salary. 
But he left that job because we both felt a call here to Midtown, and he felt a call to this new role with um, a smaller international NGO that wanted to start programming here in the U.S., so it was a startup. Um, this was an organization that, fight, that aimed to fight injustice and poverty by targeting um, systemic issues of racial inequity, um, gender inequity, and environmental justice. You know, it sounds amazing, but, but the unfortunate thing is that there's not a whole lot of money in organizations that strive to fight for uh, racial justice, gender justice, and environmental justice. And because of this, as of this month, this organization is shutting down its operations because it was not financially sustainable. So now my husband is on the hunt for a job. We are on the hunt for a job. And so you might ask me, Susie, how are you doing? And I'll say, oh, I'm good. And I am good. Now, don't get it wrong. We are trusting. We believe. We're praying. We know that God's got something for us. I'm expectant. I'm good. But deep down, there is a part of me that's a little nervous. There is a part of me that's a little worried. Because one month of job hunting can easily turn into two, and then it can turn into three, and two years might turn into two, two months might turn into two years. We don't know how long he will be without a job. And there's part of me that wrestles with God. There's part of me that's saying, God, we came here in faith. We know that you are Jehovah Jireh, our provider. We know that you are El Roy, the God who sees, who sees our need, who knows everything about us and will provide for us. But I'm still human, God. There's still part of me that's a little bit worried, wrestling a little bit with doubt, wrestling a little bit with fear that we might have to wait longer than we want to. And in the past, we did this for 14 years. We were missionaries with a nonprofit missions organization. We had to fundraise. And as a part of this organization, we had to take this thing called a vow of poverty. I know it sounds kind of foreign to people, but we took a vow of simplicity, which means we didn't make no money, okay? <laughs> so we, we obeyed this call, and, 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 and I was like, Lord, thank you for those years. We were faithful. You were faithful, and so much good came out of those years, but thank God that season is over. <laughs> you know, that's what I was feeling like. Man, we're finally able to get some financial footing under us, and I was feeling good. And... um. It's, it's vulnerable to say this, and there's no shame in this, but, but I'm sharing with you vulnerably. Even in those years of raising support, yes, God had us. God provided for us. But as a mom of four, you know what? I was on WIC. We had EBT, food stamps. We had to get supplement from the government. And there are people who would look at that and be like, oh, oh okay. But there's no shame in that. I don't want you to feel shame in that. But it's a vulnerable place to be. It's a vulnerable place to be, to be. And sometimes we did feel weak. Sometimes we did feel needy. It, it doesn't feel good to be in that place. And so now in this season, I'm like, God, is that the direction that we're heading back in now? I'm still driving my husband's car from college. It's the 2002 Corolla that's like literally falling apart. But God, you know, look, we're trusting you. It's still a good car. We thank you for all of your provision. But you know, it ain't fun being broke. It is not fun being broke. I know there was an amen in someone's spirit on that one. <laughs> you know, and, and it's not fun feeling like you don't have it all together. 
that it's all not put together right now. And so what we do is we hide our shortcomings. We hide our needs. We hide where we feel vulnerable or where we feel weak. And we just say to one another, oh, I'm good. It's all good. I'm good. Now, having said all that, we really are good, okay? I don't want you to be worried about me. Like, I'm not at home crying yet, crying myself to sleep yet. But, but I, I'm, we're good. We're trusting. We're good. We know that God has got us. But if you do have some leads on a job, holler at your girl, okay? Um, I'm just keeping it real. We're making our needs known. And, and I say this because I hope that you can feel like you too do not have it all, do not need to have it all put together. When you show up to church, this is a place where we give you permission to say that you're needy, that you're vulnerable, that you're weak, that you need encouragement, that you're here and you're going to worship despite your circumstances and you want to be encouraged. Maybe the word of truth is going to encourage you today. Maybe just being in fellowship with your brothers and sisters is going to give you the encouragement that you need for this week. So we're glad that you can come here. We can be transparent with each other. We can be broken and heal together. See, facades and faking it only last so long. If you don't get real and face the truth, things can get really messy. And faking it is exhausting. And it it doesn't end well. Back in 2013, there were two scandals in the sports world that captured all of our attention. Um, One was what one journalist would call the disgrace of Lance Armstrong. And the other was the humiliation of Manti Teo. See, Lance Armstrong had just confessed that he took performance-enhancing drugs to win all seven of his Tour de France titles. He got caught cheating, and he had been lying about it for years. And then there was Manti Teo, who was a star linebacker at Notre Dame. He was in his senior year, and he was destined to be a first-round draft pick in the NFL. But in December of 2012, on the same day that his grandmother had passed, his girlfriend had also died, or so he thought. Turns out this girlfriend didn't actually die. Turns out this girlfriend didn't even exist This was a fake girlfriend. For those of you who don't know the story, you're like, what? Okay, go back. There's a Netflix special on it right now, okay? We were in, in we were engrossed in the story because it, it felt like it felt like a soap opera playing out before our eyes, right? What? This guy, he, he loses his grandmother and his girlfriend in the same day, and then he go and he plays in the game and he plays this stellar game and he says, I did it for them. And everybody was like cheering for Manti Te, who's from Hawaii, he's Samoan Hawaiian. And so people were like, you know, like were waving around lays in the in the stadium and stuff, and everybody had like Manti Teo fever. But then a few weeks later the story breaks that this girlfriend never even existed. It was a lie that started with a fake Facebook profile, stolen pictures, and a made-up persona. This was the fishiest of catfish stories. And it was so wild that they made a Netflix special about it 10 years later. So here's what happened. Manti Teo, he fell in love with a lie. And as a result, he was left heartbroken and humiliated. You know, people were downright mean They made a mockery out of his heartbreak. Some called him stupid. Others called him naive. And others said he was in on it from the beginning. They said it was all fake from the beginning. He did this just just for attention. And, and, And while I don't know him personally, and there are details that none of us will ever know about, I think that it was simply a, a heartbreaking situation where Manti Teo fell in love with a lie, 
a facade. Now, whether it's Lance Armstrong who lied and cheated, or the person who deceived Mantiteo with lies and facade, what the sense of betrayal that we feel for them or with them or at them tells us is that truth is important to us. Truth is important to us. Our lives and our relationships hinge upon what is true and what is not. You can only keep up appearances for so long. Deception and lies lead to suffering, pain, and even death. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, this is a bold statement, and it's worth investigating. One premise that this sermon series was built upon was the idea that we wanted to dive deeper into the profile of who God is. And so we, we threw around this idea. We said, well, if God had a social media profile, what would it say? What would it say in his about me section? Now, on the one hand, our God is so big that he's just indescribable, right? In the book of John, at the end of the gospel of John, he says, you know, Jesus did so many things that, that there are not enough rooms in the world or books in the world that would be able to fill up. Like, there's not enough room to talk about how big God is, how many things he did. He's just indescribable. He's beyond our comprehension. But there are some about me details that Jesus himself gives us straight up in the Bible. And John 14, 6 is one of them. He, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the only way to the Father. Now notice Jesus doesn't say he is a truth as if he's an option for truth. Or he doesn't even just say that he's simply telling the truth. What Jesus says here is that he is the truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And he is the only truth that gives us access to the Father. Everything about him is true. Nothing in him is false. This is a very big and consequential statement. He is all that is true, all that is pure, all that is righteous. He is the standard of right and wrong, of what is holy and what is not. And he is the truth. Now the word truth in Greek, it's a noun. And it literally means the state of not being hidden. The word for truth here is the state of not being hidden. There's nothing to hide when it comes to the truth. Now, this isn't going to turn into a um, Pastor Susie's communal confession time, but I'm going to get vulnerable and share with you something once again. Confess something else to you. I'm going to tell you the truth about something that I've been hiding for years. To tell you the truth, my hair is not really black. Um, it is black, it is black, but not all of it. See, what I've been hiding is that I have a lot of gray hair. And so every several weeks, I have a date with um, Clairol, soft black, number two. And uh, this box of Clairol helps me hide the gray hairs that exist on my head. So you could say that my hair is not the truth, okay? My hair is not the truth. A lot of my grays are in hiding. And they're going to stay hiding, I hope. <laughs> but there are definitely, you know, a few things worse than hiding some gray hairs. Uh, there are worse things that people can be hiding. See, a person can appear to be one way, but in reality be a whole nother way. Satan is the master of putting on appearances, where in reality he's the father of lies. 
the father of lies. See, what Satan does is he appeals to all of our senses and sensibilities. He's convincing and conniving. And I know Pastor Ricky joked last week about um, the devil on his shoulder and the angel on the other. He said the devil was like this guy in red spandex with a pitchfork. And the angel was like the Lululemon wearing halo wearer, right? Um, and, and, and yes, sometimes lies and wickedness are blatant and obvious. But Satan is a lot craftier than that. Deception is a lot trickier than that. There's a whole list of deceptions that we could talk about here. Uh, how Satan can appeal to our senses with greed and lust and pride. And how we get enticed into justifying our actions and not even recognizing the sin that is in our life. But let me just lightly touch upon one of the sins that I think that many of us, most of us, all of us struggle with. And we struggle with it from an early age to the time that we're very old. And that's pride. Pride can rear its ugly head many different ways. It can show up as arrogance. It can show up as conceit, ingratitude, or entitlement. It can even show up as fear. When we refuse to be humble enough to rest in God's care, and we fail to trust that God is Jehovah Jireh, our provider, El Roy, the God who sees, prayerlessness can be a result of our pride. Uh, when, when, we, when, we, um, when we refuse to be humble enough to rely on God, we start relying on ourselves. So prayerless is another symptom of pride. This is when we start to think that we can do things on our own, in our own strength, on our own terms, without a need for the power, guidance, and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's pride. And when we're, when we're prayerless, it, it, it indicates that we're relying on ourselves more than we're relying on God. See, prayerlessness is an I got this attitude, whereas a life of prayer is a God's got this attitude. So y'all, are we leaning into prayer? Are we dependent on God? Are we asking God for help? Are we recognizing our neediness before God? Our dependence on God? Are we being vulnerable before God? Are we recognizing our shortcomings? Are we recognizing that we are sinners in need of a Savior? That we need forgiveness? Are we recognizing that His mercies are new every morning and we're asking Him for help day by day? Lord, I need you. I need you. Day by day, I need you. See, a lack of prayer, which is a symptom of pride, can also lead to another manifestation of pride in our life. It can lead us to rebellion against God. One author says that rebellion is the reflex of a prideful heart. Rebellion is the reflex of a prideful heart. God tells me one thing and I do the other. That's the reflex of a prideful heart. Rebellion shows itself in resistance towards the word of truth. It's a lack of submission to the truth and ultimately says, I know better than God. And that's a scary place to be. See, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. Thinking that they knew better than God, in their rebellion, they sinned. And then when they sinned, it caused them to hide from God. Their rebellion led to pain, suffering, and even death. But in response, what God did is God decided to reach back all the way to that sin, that original sin in the garden. And, and God decided to step in with the ultimate act of love by sending his son, Jesus, the way, the truth, the life 
to die for our sins so that we might have right standing with him, so that we do not have to hide anymore. Let me read to you John 3.16. Okay, 3.16, familiar verse. I'm going to read to you John 3.16, but we're going to go a little further and go to John 3.21. And it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. His sin has to remain hidden and therefore they will not come into the light. But whoever lives by the truth, who is the truth? Jesus comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done through God. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth, by Jesus, has no reason for fear. See, rebellion, fear, hiding causes us to run from the truth. But true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Amen. Now listen, it is not prideful, nor is it arrogant to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. You know, it's actually an act of humility. Uh, It's an act of humility to believe this. It's the recognition that no good deeds, no striving, no moral achievement or anything in and of me is what saves me. It's a submission and a belief that Jesus is God. There is no one before him, no one after him, and nothing additional is necessary to Jesus in order to be saved. Listen, if Jesus alone is not good enough to save then Jesus isn't who he said he is. He is not God if he can't save us. But if he is God, then he alone is worthy to save. Here's the hang-up that a lot of people have about John 14, 6. To some, the declaration, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, sounds exclusionary. It sounds arrogant. Maybe it even sounds unloving or mean. Some might argue, how can a loving and gracious and humble God say, I am the only way, I am the only truth, I am the only life, and the only way to God is through me. And I can see why this would sound exclusionary. And it's worse than not being able to have access to a country club, right? Or even worse, it's worse than not being able to shop at Costco because you don't have a membership, right? But I've heard it explained this way. This claim in John 14, 6, it sounds exclusive to those who don't understand, but it's actually the most inclusive exclusivity. 
It's the most inclusive exclusivity because yes, if Jesus is who he says he really is, if that's truth, if, if, if that's true that he is the truth, well then really he is the only way to the father. But the reason why this exclusive offer is so inclusive is because it's open to everybody. It's open to everybody. And God has a special concern for those who in this world are marginalized, oppressed, forgotten, overlooked, voiceless, powerless. God has a special concern for those on the margin. And he says, come eat, feast at the table. Come Buy bread without money. Come, everyone who is hungry and thirsty, come and eat. This invitation is available and open to all of you. Come, if you would just receive that invitation. It is the most inclusive, exclusive offer that you'll ever come across. This is the good news, and this is the truth about love. For God so loved the entire world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's an inclusive offer made exclusively through Jesus. And here's why having access to the exclusively righteous Jesus should make us the most humble, grateful, and gracious people out there. When you recognize that you are a sinner in need of grace, that you needed saving because you cannot save yourself. When you realize that it's the grace of God that has saved you and that you are no better than the person beside you. When you recognize that we are all in need, vulnerable, weak, and needy before God, then you can't help but be grateful and you can't help but be one who can extend grace and love and patience and kindness because you were accepted extended that same kind of grace and patience and kindness. See, with every other religion, there is some sort of effort or discipline or achievement or duty that is required to be considered worthy of salvation or nirvana or enlightenment. Now, if you believe in karma or reincarnation, the message is don't be a jerk or you can come back as a skunk or something bad, right? But for God to give us his son, his only son, and make belief in him, the only requirement as a means to everlasting love and eternal relationship with him, it's actually incredibly kind and generous. And you know, it was actually out of great kindness and care that Jesus made this declaration in John 14, 6. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he wasn't saying it with bravado. He wasn't saying it in arrogance. He wasn't being braggadocious. It's not like he was, you know, like when you watch those boxing matches and they get face-to-face with one another and they try to, like, man up on each other and be bigger than the other person. He's not saying this, I'm the way, I am the truth, I'm the only... He's not saying it like that. He's not in the middle of like this vicious rap battle trying to be better than the other person, right? John 14 is set around the table at the Last Supper. This is right after Jesus had finished washing the feet of his disciples. This is after he reveals that one of his disciples is going to betray him and the other one is going to deny him. This is after he predicts again that he is going to suffer and die. And this is right before he knows he's about to enter into the hardest moments of his life on earth. But John 14, 1 starts like this. He says to his disciples lovingly, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. John 14 starts with words of comfort and care. And this is the tone in which Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the one who gives you access to the Father. And he assures the disciples that he is going to go and prepare a place for them. That in his Father's house, there are many rooms. There's room for so many. So yes, salvation, eternal life is available exclusively through Jesus, but it's available to everyone. The strong and the weak, the rich and the poor, those who are esteemed in this world and those who are not. And Jesus has a special concern for the overlooked, the undervalued, the forgotten, the broken, the abused, and the abandoned. Everyone can have a place with the Father through faith in Jesus. This is the truth about love. This is the good news. Now to end, I just backed up and I gave you more context to John 14, 6. And, and, and I want to do that here with John 3, 16 as well. When people elaborate on John 3, 16, they often go into John 17 and 18. And that's what I did, right? But, but before John 16 is John 15 and John 14. And I want to go back and read it to you here because it's, it's insightful. It says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone in, who believes in him may have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, what does that mean? Why is it here? Back in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, God sent a plague of snakes to punish the people for their rebellion. God is gracious and kind, but there are consequences for our rebellion sometimes, right? So, so in this place, though God loved them, and though God called them his chosen people, there are consequences for the, their rebellion. And when God sent the plague of snakes, those who were bitten by a snake would be doomed to die. But God made a way for provision. Uh, Moses was instructed by God to make a brass snake and put it on a stick and hold it up in the air. And he was told, when you hold this stick up in the air, those who look upon it, if they believe that they can be healed, they look upon it and they believe, they will be healed and they will not die. That's what happened. And, and this is actually um, why a snake on a stick was a symbol of healing and it was adopted later by Greeks in their mythology centuries later. And those of you in the medical field may recognize that a snake on a stick is the international medical symbol even today. But why do I mention this? And why is it here in this passage of scripture? See, what Moses did was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a stick in the air so that all who looked upon it could be healed, Jesus would later be put upon a stick and lifted up in the air so that everyone that looked upon him and believed would have access to healing and everlasting life. See, what Jesus did was not meant to be hidden. He is the truth. He was made a public spectacle on purpose so that anyone who would look upon the cross and what he did and saw it and believed would be healed and have everlasting life. This is the truth about love. And this is the truth about the love of our Savior. I, I'm not sure if you're here today. And you've, you've never responded to this good news. If there's a stirring in your heart and you have not made a commitment to know Jesus, and if you've not 
profess the belief that, that Jesus died for you and that he loves you and he wants relationship with you, well, then I don't want you to leave here today without praying that prayer or making that, making that sure. And, and this is why at the end of the service, this curtain will open up and there will be a team of people who will pray with you. They'll walk you through that prayer. If you have never made a commitment to follow after Jesus and you want to do that today, make sure you go into that corner and you pray with somebody today. But for those of you who maybe have already said yes to Jesus, and, and maybe you're struggling with unbelief, maybe you're struggling with something that you just need a little bit more prayer support around, I want you to go over to that corner and ask someone to pray for you as well. Like I said, when you come here on a Sunday morning, we don't expect you to come here acting like you got it all together. If there is something broken, if there is something needy, if there is something painful in your life right now, come bring it to the altar. Come bring it to a brother and sister who will pray with you and will help fortify you in the name of Jesus. Can we lean into that today? Church, as we leave, may we be reminded that God himself, the God of peace, sanctifies us through and through. May your whole spirit, your soul, and your body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may you remember that the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Go in peace. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning into Midtown Church. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast for weekly messages to stay rooted in the word and for a dose of hope, health, and healing in your life. Want to get more connected to Midtown Church? Just visit us online at midtownchurch.org.